we're setting out to build a generational business. We knew from the outset it was important to break that down into discrete horizons or units of progress. That's Cameron Ferris, the co-founder of Inventure Life Sciences, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Welcome to season three of Wild Hearts. I'm your host, Mason Yates, and this is a podcast dedicated to revealing the secrets from the founders looking to change the world. Most medical researchers currently test their drug development ideas on 2D cells or mice, which as you can imagine, doesn't simulate reality when that drug comes into contact with cells in the human body. It can take years of research for a particular drug to arrive at human clinical trials to then fail because the drug is asked to work in a real situation. InVenture builds machines that create human cell models, which closely and predictably imitate real human tissue structures. This unlocks the pioneers in the fields of drug discovery and biomedical research to make world-class discoveries right in their labs. In this episode, Dr. Aidan Amani and Cameron Ferris, two of the co-founders of InVenture, share how the four founders joined forces, how this biomedical company approached operating like a software company, what the future holds for medical research, and so much more. To zoom out, InVenture has a thrilling mission to scale the creation of human tissue. I am honestly so excited to share this episode. And so without further ado, here are the two founders. So as I was thinking about the founding story, it sort of reminded me of the Avengers. <laughs> different skill sets, different minds coming together. I wanted to start with you, Aiden, on what you brought to the table and how you met Julio and I guess what was the meeting of minds. Yeah, that's it's a good story, good place to start, I think. So that was way back in 2012, I think, almost 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago now, maybe. And I was working at Memjet on designing the world's fastest inkjet printers and all that, which was pretty cool, but they were going through some pretty tough times at that point. And I'd been there for a couple of years and was kind of looking for a new challenge, something to sink my teeth into. And I was out one night at this Silicon Beach meetup. I think it was the only second time I'd ever been. And I met this guy, Alex, and Alex was like, oh, what do you do? And I was like, oh designing jet printers. And that immediately turns most people off. You know, they don't want to talk to you after that. But yeah, Alex was like, no way. And he's like, oh, I really have to talk to you. We got a chatting and he's like, you have to meet Julio. So the next week I met Julio at Tropicana after one of his gym sessions. He's a power lifter. And we sat down and we just got straight to it, really. We just started talking about bioprinting and cancer biology and skin printing and all of it. And yeah, he had this incredible vision for developing a product for medical research. You know, that's not a regulated market. And then the longer term vision was really that regenerative medicine, you know, larger tissue engineering. And I kind of thought that's a pretty cool problem, pretty hard problem. You know, how hard could it be? <laughs> and from your experience, having built or been building one of the fastest inkjet printing technologies in the world at the time, what skills or ideas had you taken from there that you could instantly run with, especially at the beginning? So I think I like to try and break problems down into like first principles. And one of the early requirements on the vision for Rastrum was that it needed speed and scale. Right, We needed to be able to generate these cell cultures or micro tissues of the human body at like a scale that hadn't been done before, you know, engineering human tissue at scale, right? That's the mission for InVenture. And the current technology, although it sort of worked, right? Like it hadn't been around that long, but the system and the process they're using wouldn't give you that scale. Mm -hmm. 
And I knew from my experience in inkjet that although the physics and the complexity of making it work was the bar was higher, but you got speed and scale for free. And so that's why I was very convinced that a droplet based bioprinter was the way to go, because if we could harness the complexity and the physics of actually making it work, then we got all these extra things for free that no one else would have and that we could actually enable human tissue at scale. I know we'll touch on first principles and, and sort of the steps that you took at the beginning. So I want to save that for a bit later. Over to you, Cam, similar question. What was the context of you two meeting? I know you were at the University of Wollongong at the time doing your PhD, but how about you share that first story meeting, Julio, and what do you think drew you two together? Yeah, so technically my background complemented Aiden's in a way in that my experience was more on the biomaterials and cell biology side compared to Aiden's deep engineering. So my PhD was some of the first work in using inkjet printers to print living cells in a reliable, reproducible way. And specifically, it focused on developing what we call bioinks. So these are the materials that kind of carry the cells through the printer and keep them alive and keep them functioning the way they're supposed to. Obviously, it was through that work that I came to meet Julio. So he was traveling around Australia looking for people doing work in this space. And we met at the University of Wollongong. And I remember vividly sitting down for a coffee with him. And within kind of the first half an hour, he was convinced that we were going to build this thing together. <laughs> and, and it was true. That experience has certainly helped along the journey. It's not really the ingredient that I added to the founding team. That was something different and diverse. So firstly, I'm very different to Aiden and Julio in that I'm far more risk averse. So I'm a bit of a cheat co-founder in many ways. <laughs> there, was, there were a good you know, four years of core technology development before we raised an external seed round where I didn't jump into the business full time. Right? You know, during that period, it was two professors at the University of New South Wales, wonderful scientists, Maria Cavallaris and Justin Good who really brought the diversity of cell biology and materials expertise to complement Aiden in those early years. And during that time, I did other things. So I've always been, you know, just as fascinated by people and people systems as I have by science and physical systems. So my mom was a scientist and my dad was an HR consultant. I think I just got equal doses of both of them. I jumped out of academia and into, you know, consulting and investment management and because I wanted to see how to really make an impact with technology in the real world. That was a really wonderful experience because it exposed me to innovation and products and people systems in, you know, really vast range of domains and contexts from startups to large multinationals in, you know, industries from biotech to banking. It was a really amazing learning experience that fueled that fascination of mine for building business and people systems around complex technology. And that's really the thing, the ingredient that I brought to the founding team, I guess, when I did jump in full time to the seed round. What was like one example of how either investment management or consulting helped you and the team during those early days? Yeah, so I think one of the wonderful things about consulting, there are many not so wonderful things about consulting, <laughs> but, but one, of, one of the wonderful things is that it does give you really meaningful insights across a really wide range of domains, right? And I'm a big believer in the value of broad domain experience. I, I think I was talking to you yeah. not long ago, Mason, about a, a book that I'm a big fan of called Range by, by David Epstein. And, you know, it talks about the fact that in an increasingly complex world where we're trying to solve increasingly wicked problems, you know, our ability to do that comes from the ability to abstract and integrate 
learnings from one context to another you know you need to be able to solve come up with solutions even if you haven't experienced a context before and i guess that's the main thing i drew from the consulting world i think and i have to ask what part of your journey before your phd led you to printing cells it's a good question i I studied nanotechnology as an undergrad which i was drawn to because it was this interesting combination of many sciences so Mm. a bit of biology bit of biomaterials bit of engineering bit of chemistry and It was a fortunate choice in hindsight because so much interesting innovation is happening at the intersection of those sciences. So in my honors year, I got to work in the lab of this wonderful Dutch professor, Mark Inhet Panhaus, and his lab was like a playground. We just kind of got to um, dive in and explore. It was really curiosity-driven research. And Mm. we started playing around with materials, like gel-like materials that could keep cells alive. And we were adding carbon nanotubes to these materials so that we could send electrical signals to cells in these gels because cells respond in interesting ways to electrical signals and so we made these really cool gels and published a paper and we got invited at the time onto that show on the abc i don't know if you remember the the new invent (laughs) and to present this gel and (laughs) is that a youtube (laughs) it probably is please don't look at it because it's pretty cringy (laughs) it was such a cool experience funnily enough actually one of the judges on the panel for that show was Professor Fiona Wood, mm. one of Australia's leading skin surgeons and Australian of the year, who we now collaborate with on uh, printing skin using our technology. She may not even remember that, but <laughs> it was a random little connection. That experience just got me so excited about this idea of using the combination of technologies to solve really interesting problems in the world. And I think I was just hooked on the idea of innovation to make an impact on health after that. And so when this opportunity came up to dive into a PhD printing cells, it was this group in Wollongong, Professor Gordon Wallace's group, who were starting to use printers to print these materials. And they said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we started printing the cells as well? And I thought that sounded like a pretty cool challenge. So I jumped in. That is amazing. And what else is fascinating is that even just hearing those two anecdotes of what you were doing before at university and what you did afterwards. It's like you've always taken this multidisciplinary approach and then like zoomed in on something and then zoomed out again and then zoomed in on something. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I'd like to say that it's by design, right? But it certainly wasn't, you know, I just took a step of something that was interesting and it's crazy the way that it's all kind of connected together and and looped back to doing what I'm doing now and yeah, I pinch myself sometimes that I'm here getting to build this incredible business with Aiden and Julia. And Aiden, how different does that sound to your approach? Are you more of the obsessive zoomed in type or do you draw inspiration in, I guess, the similar style to Cameron? Maybe a a touch different. I think I like really hard problems, hard complex problems, and I get drawn to them. A few of the engineers in, in the business remark, oh, you know, if, if I show up to one of their meetings or into the team, they know the problem they're working on is maybe the hardest one in the, in the company. I just get drawn into those really hairy kind of problems. And that's my jam, I guess. Yeah. Where I really like trying to break it down and trying to decouple things and try to understand it. And the three of you came from, you all did PhDs, right? And I might go as far as to say that sometimes they're criticized, PhDs in general are criticized for not being the most risk-taking bunch, looking at you, Cameron. <laughs> Is that a fair criticism? And what was it like taking the leap of faith in both of your journeys? And especially with the backdrop of the risk, like, am I going to get back into uni? If this doesn't work out, run us through some of the worries. From my background and my PhD, I was lucky enough that it was 
sponsored by an industrial backer. So it was very pragmatic and very applied research, I would say. And they had a very clear problem again that I was like trying to solve for them. Yeah. You know, for me, that was a similar thing, right? Like kind of, it wasn't just research for research sake. It was a clear goal and a clear problem to be solved. And then, I don't know, risk, risk is a funny one. Mm. I think, you know, when I'm not busy building adventure, I'm hanging off a cliff, right? Climbing. And <laughs> I learned a lot about risk from climbing, right? Like, and the <laughs> risk is very real. Like it's very confronting. You can get into a situation where, you know, you start to get that real fear for your life, right? And that's very different to a risk around building a company. For me, the risk is, you know, I want InVenture to succeed. I don't want it to fail, right? I do everything I can to make good decisions and help them succeed. But if it fails, then it's not the end of the world, right? Like we just move on, you can get another job. So I don't know, that's kind of how I look at it. It didn't really seem like a risk that, you know, I considered as a, a major risk in, in my opinion, but that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, Aiden's clearly wired different to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm maybe more your stereotypical risk-averse academic. <laughs> and clearly, you know, I didn't, I didn't jump in straight away. So you're not into rock climbing. <laughs> I'm not into rock climbing. You know, you wouldn't catch me dead hanging off a cliff. And you know, I'm so thankful for the, you know, the conviction and the commitment that that Aiden and Julia had in those early years to take that risk. I mean. But, but of course, there was still, you know, there's still lots of risk when I did jump in and, you know, took a big pay cut from a corporate job and I had young kids and a mortgage and all that thing. And, but I wanted to make an impact on the world. And I saw this was such an incredible opportunity to have real impact. And I used, I think at the time, you know, that risk minimization framework, which I think is a Jeff Bezos thing. Yep. Sorry, not risk minimization, regret minimization. Yes, framework. Yes. You know, are you going to regret this decision or not? And I thought, you know, this opportunity to, take this transformative technology and have an impact on the world. Am I going to re regret jumping into that? Of course not. Am I going to regret not giving that a crack? Probably. So, <laughs> and, and you know, I know, probably lots of people, lots of your listeners are you know, considering maybe jumping out of corporate world or academia and having a crack at startups. And I just probably reassure them that it's far less scary and risky and way more rewarding and fulfilling than you perhaps imagine. So. <laughs> I don't want to get too off track, but when you said regret minimization, I instantly think of this idea where like people think of death differently and it's sort of highlighted in your responses. How often do you both think about death? Is it like a daily, monthly, or you never think about it? It sounds like it's daily for you. Aiden. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to happen to all of us. You know, it's inevitable. And I think all you can do is, I think the regret minimization is a good way to put it, try and take some risk and leave something behind and have some impact and leave a positive impact behind you. That's, yeah, I wouldn't say I think about it every day, put it that way. So if we extrapolate the cognitive differences and diversity in the founding team, do you think that was something that blocked you to move fast at the beginning? Differences in opinion, democratic style, or was it something that really unlocked you in the more autonomous sense? I think particularly in the early days, Julia and I, like our skill set is very different. And I feel like it was a really unlocking because we focused on very different aspects of the business and very different sides. And we both brought strengths in different sides of the business and what we were trying to do. And we very rarely crossed swords about things because we kind of trusted each other that the other person had their piece under control and we were building towards the same thing. 
So for me, I feel like it was a really enabling factor and even going one step further, like Cameron was alluding to earlier, having Professor Justin Gooding and Professor Maria Cavallaris from UNSW involved in the early days. And they have, you know, very different mindsets and thinking and experience. And just putting all that together is really powerful if you can find a way to collaborate and make decisions in a kind of a way that you can move quickly. I think that's the key, right? Like being able to bring all of the opinions together and make decisions and kind of move forward. Yeah, I think those early years is a really beautiful picture of a very cognitively diverse team in action with Justin and Maria and their teams working on the problem with Aiden and Julio and a really wonderful collaboration, which has created great things. And, you know, that team won a Eureka Prize for that, that innovation. But I've found too, in my experience, one of the most rewarding things about building InVenture has been I guess, seeing the power of cognitive diversity in action. So Julio, Aiden and I are all very different. We see most problems through a very different frame, but we're very comfortable kind of sitting in those differences and wrestling with it until we find a solution to that problem that you know usually considers our unique perspectives and therefore it's usually a pretty good path. And so I think diversity of thought is kind of baked into the DNA of InVenture and I think it's made it a really lovely place to be with a mix of really intelligent people from different disciplines with different perspectives, all aligned on solving the same challenge. And I think the goal for us now is really scaling that as we become a global business and trying to maintain that diverse culture as we scale. Let's touch on that. Like I was speaking to Nikki Shabak, the general partner of Blackbird, and he was just talking about all of the different types of people from biologists to software developers, to hardware engineers. How have you organized teams within InVenture? And what have you learned about getting cross-functional teams to work well together? In two words, a lot, I would say. We've learned a lot about that. <laughs> I think it's been one of the major keys to our success, even from the early days, being able to bring those different disciplines together. In general, they have very different thought processes. Like before InVenture, I have no experience in biology, right? So I have to work with biologists because that's a technical place where I don't have lots of expertise there but I can rely and work with biologists to, to fill the gap. But in terms of setting up the teams, we tried to adopt that agile mindset and have outcome-driven teams. So putting biologists, material scientists, and engineers together in a team and having really clear outcomes for the product to guide them. And then they can use all of their different skills and backgrounds and experience and bring all that together and deliver something really incredible. When we put that framework in place, which was, I think, post the Series A, because up to that point, I guess we had mostly engineers and a lot of the technology development was kind of running through me. But then we got a bit bigger and you couldn't do that anymore. So we implemented the agile team structure and that was a game changer in the business. We still use that framework now and I think we'll continue in the future. How does it work? Describe the sort of team dynamic and maybe how long a, a sprint might be and the way that everyone works together. I think interestingly, I think we had a couple of false starts initially trying to get it to work well because we just tried to slap on an agile system on top of what were starting to emerge as siloed engineering or cell biology teams. And we just tried to, you know, slap on an agile principle and, you know, work in cross-functional teams and work in two-week sprints and use this software tool <laughs> and had a few false starts. And it wasn't really until we took a step back and really focused on the core principles of agile development. And that was really aided by, we brought into the team, Bob Groman, who's now our CPO, who had deep experience running cross-functional agile teams and was able to bring us back to the true principles of things like shared ownership and true agency over 
outcomes rather than tasks orientation and shared visibility of that and why it's important to the goals of the business and bring teams back to those core principles and really embedding them in that made it work. And from there, we, you know, we work in two weeks sprints and we use software tools and run a pretty standard agile rituals, but it, without the core principles, it, it didn't work. Yeah, I can totally see how, especially at the beginning, the biologists want to work with the biologists, the software engineers want to work with the software engineers and same with hardware. And then like that can probably work for a bit. As you sort of mentioned earlier, Aiden, it was like, I worked in my lane and Julia worked in his and that really worked for us. But as you sort of scale that, you can see how that can sort of break down. How often would a biologist be speaking with an engineer? Are these sort of 360 degree view teams where one team has certain goals that they're striving for? Or am I wrong? No, right. I think a biologist might be talking to an engineer every day, especially if they're in the same team, right? I try to set it up so the team owns the outcome, right? And if one week, the majority of the work is on the biology side, then the team's goal is the team's goal. And an engineer can try and jump in and assist the biologist to get the work done, right? Like that's the principle, right? Mm. You do whatever you can. You know, that means maybe you need to pick up tools you're not as familiar with and, you know, you get a bit more experience there, but yeah, trying to have a broad range of skills and being able to have the team deliver an outcome, not a single person deliver one particular thing. And you mentioned there are a couple of false starts. At what sort of size was the team that you felt that sort of growing tension and some of those comms breakdowns? This was pretty early. This was like 10 to 20 people where it got big enough that it was suddenly not one little core team who could all fit around a table and discuss everything together. And, you know, very early on in the journey, you start seeing those little silos emerge and need to work really hard to bring these teams together. And I'm so glad we did because it set a, a wonderful foundation for scaling from there. What's fascinating about InVenture is that you have this incredible long-term vision to be able to print effectively human organs, but you've broken down that finish line into discrete steps. What are those steps and what have you sort of learned about crafting a product roadmap with an incredibly long-term and ambitious set of goals? Yeah, the technology that we're developing is really a fundamental shift in our ability to engineer biological tissue at scale. So it's a a big mission. We believe it'll have a transformative impact on health over the long term. You know, we're setting out to build a generational business that realizes this impact for the long term. And we knew from the outset it was important to break that down into discrete horizons because, you know, we didn't want to become this company that was a, you know, listed biotech zombie <laughs> burning cash for a long time <laughs> with, you know, with a relatively binary outcome, you know, success or failure in the long term, right? We, we wanted to prove to ourselves and our customers and investors and our team that there's deep long-term value in this technology but to validate it through these shorter term incremental units of progress. So from the outset, we thought about the long-term impact in health across a few main horizons, broad horizons. So from research through to drug discovery, through to regenerative medicine in the long-term where the shorter term horizons were products that we could bring to market quickly in non-regulated spaces, for example, so where we could start generating revenue and impact and real value to customers and that would build a really firm foundation for the business and the technology to then jump into the longer term horizons from there. But then even within those broad horizons, you know, we're talking about really complex hardware and biological development. And so it's been very necessary to structure discrete units of progress, even within each horizon, you know, take Rastrum for research and drug discovery, you know, we've needed to define really key value inflection points along the way. 
and then assemble the right resource or the right team, the right money, the right infrastructure to achieve that value inflection point. That would be a demonstration of value of the product or de-risk development. And, you know, if you think from pre-seed round, it was about demonstrating that the core technology worked Mm. from seed to series A. It was taking that technology out of the lab and into a product that would democratize access to this technology for customers in drug discovery. From series A to series B, it was really about product market fit and showing that we could really generate value for customers in a scalable way. And then within that period of series A to series B, we took the long-term horizon of regenerative medicine and achieved a discrete value inflection point in getting Lego, our medical device product, to a proof of concept stage. It's kind of, yeah, within these broad horizons, these layerings of discrete inflection points or units of progress that, you know, combine to this layer cape of incremental value that adds up to the impact trying to make on health. Nadim, for you, if we rewind the clock back to the early days when you're brainstorming with Julio, how do you balance the long-term, short-term, especially in that early stage where you're just trying to figure out whether you have something? Yeah, I think in the early stage, we focused really clearly on the first step, right? And that was brought from Marie and her team at the Children's Cancer Institute they were already using spheroids, so little micro tissues to do research. And they were already doing that manually, right? Paying a PhD student to use a pipette to make these things. And the first step was, let's figure out how we can automate that. That's our goal, to take this work the PhD student had been doing and figure out how to automate it. That was the first incarnation of the kind of core technology and the application. And that's what Nikki and the Blackboard team saw at the seed round was that prototype, which became lovingly referred to as the Frankenstein, you know, it didn't, <laughs> didn't win any design awards, but it worked, right? Like it was the MVP of the core technology, not so much the product, but it was, yeah. you know, it was that core technology. And we did, I think we did a lot with a little, like we didn't have a lot of resources, but we achieved a lot, I think. And then from there, it was about, right, okay, we have got some more resources now. Let's figure out how we can turn this thing into a product, right? And that's been maybe a a longer journey than I thought it would be, you know, because we took that core technology and we developed the printer restroom, right? The shiny pink and chrome box, right? It looks a lot better, but internally it's the same core technology. And we thought we had a product, but then we realized after a little while that the printer was not the product. The product was what the customer takes out of it you know, the cell cultures of the micro tissues. Yeah. So it's been that journey of learning more about what's the actual product and what are our customers going to get value out of. And then I think in the long term, the vision has never really changed, right? We want to be able to have an impact in regenerative medicine. And so you just take the first step, right? The first step on Lego, so our kind of first product in the regenerative medicine space for skin tissue repair was we took the printhead out of Rastrum. We did the simplest thing possible. We took the printhead out of Rastrum, and I mean, literally took it out and we bolted it to the end of a robot. (laughs) That's like the first step. We used the same biomaterials that we had in Rastrum. We did like the same thing. So you just do the most basic first step you can do. And then that seemed to work okay. And, you know, we just iterate on that, keep iterating and keep adding more complexity and more power that we think we've got something that we feel is feasible that we could put in a product. I'd love for you to double click on that challenge of building a product and 
if you could go back in time, like what would you be telling yourself to, I guess, accelerate those learnings or was it really just a matter of time anyway? Yeah, I think the one thing I'd do differently going back in time is just seek to get the product in the hands of more customers early on, right? But the only way to truly iterate on the product and learn where real value is and the intersection of that value to a great product and a great business is to work with as many customers as you can and learn as much as you can from their usage and feedback, particularly with a transformative technology like this, right? Where if you quizzed customers up front about what they wanted to see in the product, they wouldn't be able to tell you because this is a completely new capability. And so you kind of just have to get them using it and learning what's possible and giving feedback and then figuring out where the value lies. And, you know, we did that incrementally along the journey and that's what allowed us to discover what the product really was but I just would have supercharged it. I would have put it in the hands of as many customers as we possibly could have early on to accelerate those learnings. I think we were lucky in that we had some really amazing early customers who were really big supporters of the vision and what we were trying to do. And I think the other part was, you know, with Bob joining the team, bringing that really software-focused customer experience lens, that really helped kind of crystallize what is the customer experience? What are they actually getting value from? And really thinking about that a lot. And that helped us to understand what actually is the product and how could we deliver it in a way that customers can get the most value and impact out of it. So I, I feel like that was a very common lens that's used in software engineering that maybe is not used in more of the hard physical products. What's an example of a product change given customer feedback? I think the biggest product change was understanding that the product was not the printer. It was the actual, what we call a print run. And that is the combination of the printer plus biomaterials, plus our print run designer, all coming together in like the final thing that comes out. And that's what our customers pay for is that they don't pay for the biomaterials. They pay for what comes out of Rastrum because that's the thing that's valuable to them. Mm. And I was also speaking to Nikki. I haven't actually seen this movie. He wanted me to ask, why is building a printer as frustrating as Dennis Denudo in the iconic Australian movie, The Castle Paints? I don't know if you know that reference. I think it's a photocopier, <laughs> isn't it? It's a very different beast to a printer. Can't translate. <laughs> Try to imagine flying tiny droplets through the air with microsecond timing and have them land with micron precision after you've fired them through the air and do that at high speed. It happens in a really small scale, but all of the things you need to bring together is equivalent to, you know, sending a rocket to the moon, right? It's a very complex, a lot of physics that comes together and happens over a very short time frame. That precision, how much time and energy and love has been put into that? A lot. Yeah. We've put a lot into this and, you know, again, it's talking about the different disciplines and the collaboration, right? You're bringing together the engineering in terms of the electromechanical systems, the fluids in terms of the biomaterials and the biology, because the fluids are carrying cells through the system, right? And all that's got to come together. And, you know, in my previous experience, I saw those things become silos and isolated where chemists are not talking to engineers and they're developing different things, but if you can do it all together, it's the symbiosis of all that coming together in, in the instrument. That's the important piece. And let's talk a bit more about this sort of transition from product to customer facing. What was it like transitioning from product to sales? And I guess break down your relationship with these customers and how you at the top of the funnel got the word out at the lower of the funnel, sort of closing that sale. What was that journey like? And are there any sort of key lessons you could share? I guess we're still really in, in the midst of that 
ongoing transition from previous phase, which was really all oriented around product market fit to this phase for Rastrum, which is really about go-to-market fit and really building a scalable and global sales engine. But in terms of our relationship with customers, in some ways, it's been an ongoing transition where the core principles haven't changed much. We've been focused throughout that whole time on just doing what we need to do to make our customers successful and really listening to feedback along the way and incorporating that into the product. And I guess the type of customers and our relationship with them has changed along the way from what Aiden touched on earlier, really wonderful early adopters and believers who are willing to take on a really nascent technology and work with us through the bumps as we iterated on the early product to you know now what is a, a much broader range of customers generating value on the platform and a much more scalable go-to-market approach. I've got the seed investment memo up at the moment. And there were two things that stood out to me. One was that in the seed memo, Nikki talks about targeting cancer researchers and getting the product mentioned in research publications featuring your experiments. How did that approach work out? Was it a successful, I guess, strategy? The scientific research community is a really a wonderful community and quite interconnected. And it's therefore quite a powerful marketing flywheel. And we're fortunate that in Australia, we have incredible medical research institutes who are globally respected. And so, you know, we're in the fortunate position of being able to work with incredible researchers in Australia and have them publish and talk about the great research they were doing with the platform and have a really meaningful impact on customers around the world and their view of the technology. We'd always known that starting with academic research in that way and publishing research on the platform would really be a great starting point to then attract the interest of pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies to apply the research. And we thought that would perhaps happen a little more slowly and that we'd grow more in the research space before jumping later into the drug discovery space. But it's been a much quicker process than we expected. You know, as soon as pharmaceutical and biotech companies started seeing some of the data coming out of the platform, they were pretty desperate to get their hands on it. So we're now working with many of the world's top 20 pharmaceutical companies and they're running some incredible drug discovery programs on the technology. So that's really changed our thinking about the sequencing of how we tackle this market. Are you able to share a, an anecdote from a customer from their experience? And perhaps anything you've unlocked in that user journey? Do you mean in terms of what they're able to do with the technology that they weren't able to do previously? Yeah, just if a researcher that comes to mind that perhaps they've discovered something new or they're able to do something that they weren't able to do before. And I guess what that was like sort of experiencing from your position as the founders. Yeah, I mean, you take a step back and our customers are on a quest to tackle diseases like cancer or Alzheimer's disease and to make a dent in our ability to treat these horrible diseases, right? And they're incredibly talented, smart folks who are, have committed their lives to making a dent in these diseases. And so when you hear stories about we have customers who are exploring completely new ways of targeting these diseases. So, for example, we have this emerging understanding of the role of the matrix, the environment around cancer and its impact on cancer, right? And previously, it just wasn't possible to model those kind of effects outside of the human body. And so we have customers who are using them now to give them insights in how they can target matrix with new drugs to fight pancreatic cancer or liver disease or Alzheimer's. And that's a pretty rewarding thing to see. Yeah, I wanted to add that tissue culture and cell culture is really just a model for the human body, right? That's its purpose is it's a simple system that we can use to understand better human biology and what happens in the body. And being able to take that from 
you know, the traditional 2D methods that have existed since I think the 50s and now change that workhorse to 3D, right? Adding another dimension. So that model of the body is now more representative. And, you know, biologists in the scientific community have known that for a while. That's the case, right? That this 3D cell models are more representative, but I haven't had the tools to be able to do that at a scale and easily. And now at Rastrum, right, we're giving the tools and the power to scientists and biologists to be able to move to 3D and be able to do that at scale, right? They'll be able to do hundreds of thousands of these 3D models really easily and simply in the same way that they could do the 2D models. And hopefully, if they can do that, then we've got better models of the body, which means it leads to better treatments, more personalized treatments, and, you know, you have a big impact on human health eventually. So I think that's really, for me, what it will do, the change and the impact it will bring. And just to give the listeners a frame, especially if they aren't familiar with the space, what's the status quo for learning about how we all work? Yeah, so if you think broadly about the context of drug discovery, right, this quest to find out how we work, how we start working wrong in the context of disease, and then how we correct that, how we fight it, we're in the middle of a pretty seismic shift in how we go about that quest. So for a long time, you know, the majority of drugs that we've developed have been pretty blunt tools. So think about chemotherapy to treat cancer. Essentially, chemotherapy drugs kill cells that are growing quickly, rapidly dividing. And so they're quite good at killing cancer because it's growing quickly, but it also attacks your hair because it's growing quickly or your skin or other parts of your body that are rapidly dividing in a pretty non-discriminatory way. And so it has awful side effects. Mm. Chemotherapy is horrible. We have a member of our team whose wife is going through chemotherapy for breast cancer right now. And it's just a horrible experience for patients. But we're shifting into this era of medicine that is more targeted and precise and personalized. And it's coming on the backdrop of this really exciting convergence of technologies. So, you know, we, of course, have the ability now to pretty cheaply and scalably measure our genetic code. We can sequence genomes now in a way that we just couldn't in the past. And so we understand this genotype or the personalized code of an individual, but we not only have the ability to measure that, we have completely new ways to measure phenotypes. So that's like the way that that genetic blueprint expresses itself in the body in function or in disease, you know, aberrant function of tissue. And so we have ways to measure that like we never have before. And perhaps even more importantly, we have the computational power to manage and analyze all those vast amounts of data generated on genotype and phenotype. So this incredible convergence of technologies, which is super exciting. And what it's giving us is the ability to approach disease in a completely new way. You know, we now know that a patient with brain cancer is not just a patient with brain cancer. They're a patient with a very specific genotype, a genetic blueprint, whose disease is manifesting in a very particular way with a very specific phenotype, you know, relevant to that individual. And if we can understand that those specific mechanisms for that person and target it, then we have a far better chance of curing that disease without impacting the rest of the body. And so that's all a pretty exciting shift in the way that we're treating disease in the world today. But the major challenge is that, you know, we can't use a human to test those relationships. You know, we've relied for a long time on kind of experiments of nature, you know, waiting for a person with a particular genetic background to develop disease and see what happens in, in that person. So what we desperately need is this scalable and reproducible way to test on the human body outside of the human body so that we can test these complex relationships between genotype and phenotype at scale. And 
the test systems that we have today really suck, not just a little bit. I mean, we're stuck with, you know, cells growing on plastic that we've had for 70 years or mice, which are so far away from human biology. And the impact on that, on this drug discovery journey is pretty remarkable. I mean, still today, 95% of drugs that look good in these test systems fail when they get to a human. It's just a ridiculous system-wide failure in the way that we approach drug discovery. And the impact is huge. I mean, we've spent billions giving Alzheimer's disease to mice and curing Alzheimer's disease in mice. And it's had no impact on, on, the, on our ability to treat Alzheimer's disease in people. Far out. So, you know, in, in that context, the really the broader impact of what we're doing is creating the test system for this new era of personalized medicine and, you know, allowing us to test on the human body outside of the body. And, you know, we believe it will help to herald in this new wave of really personalized, targeted and precise drugs for anything from cancer to Alzheimer's disease and make a real impact on health. I want to go a step further and almost just reframe the question and just say like, if everything goes right, what does the world look like with InventureBear? I think the world of healthcare in the future, I think will be far more personalized and proactive and customer centric. When you say customer, is that patient? Patient, yeah. We'll see patients as customers, you know, and approach patients in a customer centric way, you know, where doctors and clinicians aren't just seen as these kind of walking terms of knowledge, but as these masterful curators of a personalized health experience, you know, where tools like AI and automation and great software products and the things we're building really just supercharge the ability of these doctors and clinicians to deliver that experience to a patient and where a patient is therefore seen as a, an individual, a customer, not just a number, not just a patient with a disease who's triaged through a particular diagnostic or therapeutic pathway, but whose experience of the health system is really crafted and excellent and based on their needs and far more effective at treating their health condition. I think it's a pretty exciting future and it applies to drug discovery, to personalized medicine, even to the work we're doing on regenerative medicine, you know, where there are similar shifts towards completely new paradigms of care that are personalized and aimed to regenerate, you know, functional tissue for an individual. And, you know, everything we're doing in Lego plays into that shift. And it's a pretty exciting picture of the future, I think. I think Cam covered it pretty well. I think I'm pretty excited about the regenerative medicine space. I guess even in the tissue engineering, bioprinting space in general, right? The first inkjet printing of cells patent was filed in 2003. This is a very new space. There is so much to do the impact that you can have in this space and how wide open it is and the amount of work to do there. There's many lifetimes and they're hard problems, but I think the future that Cam's painted is the one we need to move towards. And I think what we're doing, I think is like a little baby step, right? A chip off the iceberg to move towards that. You know, one day we'll get to a point where we'll be able to engineer organs for a customer, as Cam put it, rather than a patient, a personalized organ. I think that's still quite a ways away. There's a lot of challenges to solve to get to that point. But I think what we're doing now is like a good first step towards that. I'm almost lost for words, but it's no wonder that a vision like that has been able to attract so many people to what you're building. I guess in the last six months, you've grown from 40 people to 100 people. It's wild. What are you focusing on and excited about over the next 12 months? I think there's a few things. Yeah, firstly, on growing the team, I think, you know, the team we've had even beyond the last growth is just, you know, incredible. People who are so passionate about the vision and really trying to do everything they can to really move it forward and have an impact. And now we're attracting some of the amazing talent coming to work at Invention and helping us on the journey. But I think in the next 12 months, I'm, I'm pretty excited that we're hoping to take 
LIGO to the first pilot study. That's going to be the first in human pilot study where we'll have hopefully some volunteers and we'll actually see if it's feasible on, on a real human. Pretty excited about that. I think that will be, I think, a world first. We've got an amazing team working on LIGO and they're driving towards that. So that's one thing that gets me excited. Just describe what it would look like when that works over the next 12 months, just for the listeners. We will be building what we're calling the advanced engineering prototype of LIGO. So that's the instrument that will be in the operating theater. We're also developing the biomaterials that will actually be printed into the human body and trying to bring those two things together along with all of the making sure that's safe, right? Priority number one is making sure that this is safe. That's the top and maybe only priority for this study, making sure that it's safe. And along with that, I think bringing all that together along with all the ethics and all of the stuff we need to do for that trial, there's a lot to do there. Yeah, and then with Rastrum, it's an exciting new phase in the drug discovery space too. You know, we've got a product in market and customers starting to generate really phenomenal data on the platform. And we're pretty excited about starting to see that accelerate progress towards some exciting new therapies. And there's a whole new set of challenges for us to tackle in that space. So scaling up manufacturing, you know, building this global go-to-market engine to get Rastrum on as many lab benches as we possibly can over the next 12 months. And, you know, with that scaling a team to, to hit those impacts and the challenges that come with that, you know, we have really incredible people joining the team, as Aiden mentioned, uh, just super talented and excited about the mission and values aligned and you know, really excited to see the impact that they're already having on our progress and the way that'll continue to accelerate as we move into this next phase of go-to-market expansion and manufacturing. So pretty excited about that over the next 12 months. It's a football reference, but you said operating theater and my mind went straight to the theater of dreams. And <laughs> that's definitely what that operating theater will look like in 12 months time. Thank you both so much for joining me. That was epic. Thanks, Mason. Thanks, Mason. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful if you liked or subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.